Hey everyone, welcome to Source, the Rethink Mining Podcast. I'm your host, Carl Weatherall. Today we're joined by Adrian Davids and Michael Raynor from Deloitte, where we're going to talk about a different way of looking at decarbonization of the mining industry through their initiative called Demand Better. Let's get into it. So um, I've been a Deloitte lifer. Uh, I've been at, I uh, started Deloitte, I finished my MBA at the University of Western Ontario um, back in 19 umpty ump and uh, joined the firm for a couple of years as a, uh, as a you know, straight in, get fed into, the, fed into the system. Did a couple of years and uh, went back and did my doctorate at the Harvard Business School and to my shock and amazement, I mean, you do a doctorate, a union card to go be a business yeah. school professor and uh, I ended up back at the firm, surprisingly, um, and have been there ever since. So that's almost, uh, almost 24 years now. Awesome, and Adrian, I understand you at a 28-year anniversary at Deloitte. So you're both lifers. That's just the Canadian version. (laughs) (laughs) I started five years prior to that uh, in South Africa. So uh, I had five years, uh, joined uh, Deloitte after my postdoc here at the University of Toronto at at Braxton Associates, which was at the time uh, a boutique strategy firm, a spin-off from BCG, Bain, and Braxton, and Deloitte acquired them. And then five years after that, um, moved to Canada and, and basically met Michael, I think, you know, sort of in the first year or so and spent the same time doing similar things. Similar things being why? Like your focus areas. More, more on the innovation side, I would say, yeah. than strategy. What I learned from Michael um, a long time ago that is strategy is making plans within the constraints and innovation is breaking those constraints. And it was always more interesting for me to try and, you know, break the constraints that we're sort of held captive to to actually create new value. Yeah. So, um, you know, so that that was my attraction in the firm. And I originally planned to stay a year, and then after that, every year would be my last year. <laughs> and I still have the same philosophy. Yeah. But At some point, you'll be right. <laughs> At some point, yeah. you'll be right. Exactly. Well, I mean, we, we had a conversation 10 years ago when we first met about let's trying to convince a couple of people, let's go buy a mine and test technology and just right. run off and create our own venture. Yeah. Yeah. I still think it's a good idea. Oh, so do I. But, I was going to. But ask we didn't about have that. money then, and now we have a means, I think, to to uh, access the the funds to do that. And now there's also the urgency that somebody has to do that. Yeah. 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 I remember, oh, just um, that was in a day with Jeff Emmelt at, um, at uh, GE when yeah. he was when he started the Internet of Things. He was the industrial internet guy. Yeah. And we were doing a lot of work, and they were doing lots of work in mining. And, and I asked him, I said, I, I don't understand. GE has all the components that is needed to create this new mine. Why, why aren't you doing it? And then basically his views were that we're all trapped in our vertical silos as well. Yeah. And unless somebody goes and built that mine so we can all see how it looks like, you know, nobody would do that by themselves um, from, from within. So yeah, A few people thought about it and tried, but it's just never happened yet. And some mining companies think they're doing it, but I can guarantee they're not. Well, I, so I, you can't fix the system from inside the system. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And that's one of the many things that I took away from a long, long-term collaboration with uh, Clay Christensen. So yeah. my work's been in, as Adrian mentioned, strategy and innovation. A lot of the innovation work came out of working with Clay. Um, I was a co-author with him on the Innovator Solution. Yeah. And so I spent 20-plus years thinking about disruptive innovation. And what has amazed me is the utter lack of disruptive innovation in the context of, I will say, um, uh, building a uh, building a climate positive industrial society is yeah. something that 
disruptive innovation has been notable by its absence. Yep. Um, and uh, insofar as we're here to talk about mining, it seems to me it's um, utterly absent here as well. And what I would observe is that that's not a supply side failing. Yeah. And that's something I think a lot of people miss is that disruption theory is fundamentally a theory of customer dependence. You tell me whom you're selling to, and that's 98% of what you need to know in order to determine whether or not you're disruptive. So, for example, um, at a, it was the last piece I did with Clay. It was a Harvard Business Review article in 2014, I think, December of 2014 or 2015. Everything's a while ago now. Um, and uh, it was what is disruptive innovation. We talked about the fact that Tesla, for example, was not a disruptive innovator. And everybody's like, what do you mean it's not? Well, the reason Tesla's not disruptive is because whom did it sell its initial cars to? Well, it was selling them to initially, right? It was the, um, the Roadster on the old Lotus Elise chassis. Yep. And that was being sold to you know guys my age with more money than I have who wanted a really cool car. And... When the, Model 3, when the Model S came out, that was competing with high-end Mercedes and BMWs, right? Those yeah. are well-established markets, and Tesla came out with a you know, better mousetrap for that particular segment of the market, and then they moved into the mainstream from there. So that's not disruptive, right? Disruption is selling to a set of customers who want a fundamentally different value proposition. Yeah. And I think in the case of mining, um, there is an inability um, to find a there's no way to connect the production of of metals to any customers other than the customers that already exist who are beholden to the constraints that they face around volume and price and reliability and all the things that go with it and so you're faced with the challenge of trying to figure out how to create a mine that delivers reliability high quality low carbon low cost right now well we we don't know how to do that yeah we don't know how to do that and so the trick becomes how do you create a market for metals that are first low carbon and then you eventually learn your way into all of those other attributes. And so it's as a consequence of a fundamental market failure. I'm hardly the first person to suggest that the, no. the, the, the climate change problem is a problem of market failure. But it's a particular, in this instance, I think we can say more than that, right? We can describe it in greater detail with greater resolution, and therein one hopes um, might lie the seeds of a, of a solution. Mm-hmm. So j- just to back up a little bit, Michael, you talked about um, disruptive innov- innovation, disruptive innovation in the mining industry. Just to be very clear, when you say disruptive innovation with respect to the mining industry, can you unpack that a little bit? Well, so disruptive innovation is a solution that shows up for in a... Uh, in a market that's outside of the mainstream, and it builds its own uh, its own value system to de- to deliver a fundamentally different value proposition, right? So I know there's a lot of jargon in there, but that what that captures then, right, are all the different attributes of a particular product or service. So if yeah. we're talking about metals, um, it's easy to think of them in terms of commodities, but what you learn when you look at any market is there's really no such thing as a commodity. Nothing's perfectly interchangeable. Um, and so the attributes of a particular product, in this case a, a metal, will be, among other things, increasingly, thank goodness, its, uh, it's carbon footprint. Yeah. And so what is, the, what is the carbon burden that comes with producing a ton of X, whatever that yeah. happens to be? And so what I tried to describe a moment ago, Ryan, is that currently uh, mines are producing those commodities and carbon is frankly still an afterthought. Yeah. Right? If you can give it to me 
for the same or lower prices with, and it has lower carbon, sure, I'll take something for nothing. Who, who wouldn't? Yeah. But we all very often don't know how to do that, right? Yeah. So disruptions show up by first um, uh, accepting a very different set of constraints and then over time learning how to break them. Yeah. Right? So that's, that's the key. And you look at any of the successful disruptions over time, and that is fundamentally the path they have chosen. And, that, and that's what Adrian was just talking about a moment ago about innovation is breaking those constraints. Yeah. Right? But, I, but I think disruption is an unfortunate use of an English term that people equate to disturbing perturbation. You, yeah. You've, yeah. you've stirred the pot in a way that you've changed the balance. And some, yeah. so suddenly, um, you know, suddenly in the case of disruption, suddenly it's 20 years you know, some, somebody shows up or some company shows up that's, you know, significantly more competitive and the incumbents are unable to compete um, at, uh, at the um, uh, level of performance um, based on the dimension of performance that disruptors are focused on. But if you look at Tesla and others, I mean, they gained a competitive advantage doing something different, but it's not a technical disruption. Yeah. We like to use disruption and I wish... Clay could have chosen a different word um, <laughs> because it's an English word that people associate with, you know, somebody doing something different and pulling yeah. away and creating a competitive advantage, whereas disruption is a very yeah. particular way of doing that. And I think that definition is really important um, and it would be hard for mining necessarily, yeah. I think, to, to do disruption. Just my point, you've got to go look for non-consuming customers or customers that's willing to pay a very low price, but do that in the context of needing to do uh, environment, um, social, and governance yep. in a different way, which layers more cost on. So it's counter yep. to what you would say a low-cost disruptor would be able to do. Um, and um, you know what Michael will explain later is that the interesting thing is we may actually find non-consuming customers of mining commodities, which is, I think, the brilliant innovation Michael came up with, that actually will change the... Um, you know, the conversation in how do we bring these minds. And, and now you can talk about disruption yeah. in the in the technical context, yeah. I think, so, of dis so disruption. Can you, can you dive into, you just mentioned non-consuming dis disruptors. What, what well, non-consuming customers. Customers, customers yeah. sorry. What, what did you mean by non Can you give it, I was just going to ask, give us an example of what this would look like. Yeah, so the one quick sidebar before I address that question directly, which is that I, I try very hard not to be a disruption bigot. It's not like that's the only way to innovate. Mm -hmm. So when I say Agreed. Tesla's not a disruptor, that's not to take anything away from yeah. the fact that Tesla has revolutionized the auto industry, yes. accelerated the adoption of EVs by a decade. It, I mean, nothing's perfect, but there's a lot more good things to be said about Tesla, uh, of what Tesla has accomplished than, than, than the contrary. Yeah. I would look at solar panels. They've yeah. gone through the same progression, not disruptive in the slightest in terms of the path they took to, to, uh, to market presence and, and mainstream adoption. Nothing but good things to say about yeah. that as well. The, um, the opportunity, I think, in the case of mining particularly, is that folks have been metaphorically and um, I won't say literally, but it's the right metaphor, have been breaking their pick in the mining business, trying to figure out how to deliver low carbon, highly reliable, high volume, high quality yeah. metals, and we don't know how to we can't fix that, right? Yeah. We, can, we can't Harry Potter, Star Trek our way into yeah. a solution. So what, and now to get to your question, um, what we've tried to think through is, well, if we can't do it via a frontal assault, the way we did it with solar panels and the way Tesla yeah. did it, where you throw enough capital at it for long enough that eventually it succumbs, well, we 
can't figure that out. That that doesn't seem to be working in the mining business. Yeah. So do we have a different? Have we got a different innovation golf club to bring to this particular tee shot? And the answer, I think, is yes. And I think it's my vote's disruption. But that requires finding the right customer base. And what I would observe is that in the mining business in particular, and in a lot of commodity markets, collectively they're known in the carbon space as the hard-to-abate sectors, yep. right? steel, cement, mining, et cetera. Um, their direct customers purchase those commodities in such significant quantities that they form a huge proportion of their total cost base. Yeah. And so if somebody shows up and says, you know that 80% of your total cost base, I'd like to increase that by 20%. How does that work for you? <laughs> well, the answer is not so well, yeah, yeah. right? Nobody feels confident that they can pass along those higher costs in the form of higher prices. Yeah. So we have to find a way to connect the supply of these commodities to customers that might be willing to pay, but don't actually buy them. So therein lies what we hope is the insight that would allow us to create a new market structure that enables disruptive innovation. So, so, so you, you mentioned create mm -hmm. the market where they buy but don't actually pay for them. Mm -hmm. Well, don't use them. Yeah, they don't, don't buy them, but they use them. They, but they use them. So no. can you explain that a little bit? I, well, I hope so. Um, <laughs> so do I. <laughs> so, I mean, everything in this room relies on metals at yeah. some point in its supply chain. Um, but good luck finding it when it comes to actually identifying, you know, what link in that global supply chain yeah. actually made a purchase on the London Metal Exchange for the nickel that's in the stand for the tripod. Yeah, yeah. Right? So the observation then is to say, well, wait a minute. The We are consumers of mining commodities, but we didn't buy any of them. But if somebody said to you, look, the, the, the value, right, the market value of all the metals, of all the things in this room is $25 at market exchange rates, given all the value add that goes into all of it. Um, and Adrian's got some actual data as opposed to a hypothetical illustration here. But you, th that's not crazy, right? There's, yeah. there's tens of thousands of dollars of equipment in here, yeah. and there's not $100 of market value metals. So if somebody said to us, instead of $100 out of 10,000, what if it was 200 bucks out of 10,000, but it was zero carbon metals? I don't know. That sounds like a deal I might take. Yeah. But then how do you connect that, right? How do you connect my willingness to pay for those commodities with the very far upstream commodities yeah. that are actually produced? That's the market failure. Right? So the market failure is the inability to connect the consumer of the commodity with the producer of the commodity yeah. because there are too many, too many intermediate buyers. Yeah. And so that's what we need to fix. Now, is some of that breaking down a little bit now if you take a look at the automotive manufacturers, for example? Like you've got a couple of deals that have been done sustainably sourced nickel, right? Uh, I can't, who, who was it, GM or Ford struck a deal with Inco. There's others, Mercedes is doing the same thing. So are, when you say that doesn't work with the market, are you talking to the market in general or regular consumers versus the one the higher-end downstream consumers? And again, I'm just trying to rationalize those two, those two things. I mean, those are buyer consortiums trying by force 
to to do the right thing because their customers are, are demanding. That's it. right. But to Michael's point before. So we're demanding up to the cars. Yeah. The, the car purchase. Who's going to demand further up? Right. I mean, eventually, all, all of us are consumers of, of mining products. Yeah. Uh, we just don't understand how it's created. Yeah. We just yeah. see the bad side of mining. Yeah. You know, the things that happen that that we don't want to have happen. But mining don't have the capacity to do the things that society is demanding of it. And it's even, you know, sort of another illustration would be if you added up all the market caps of all the mining companies listed in the world, it's less than a trillion dollars, yeah. quite significantly less now. I mean, Apple was a $3 trillion company. Yeah. So one yeah. company is worth more um, because of the profit and, and, the, and, and the value that it provides to society. But mining is not seen by, exactly. by society in that light, right? Yeah. And so I think there's a significant underappreciation for for the dependence that we have on mining. Yeah. And um, and it goes further. You know, we're we're very focused on doing um, the conversion to electric vehicles to reduce tailpipe emissions, which of course is where the biggest emissions are. But what we're left with is converting from burning fuels to to using metals yeah. to store the energy to to construct the the systems that hold the energy. Um, you know, the metals in the car. So we're going from a fuel burning to a metal mining industry and really recycling energy through metals. Um, but if we don't ensure that those metals are produced in a way that right. that it is climate uh, aligned in terms of the net zero goals, um, you know, as Michael would say, we're digging a hole to, to fill a hole. And so, yeah, so I think the, the uh, automotive industry is, of course, recognizing that. Um, they're, not, um, they're not oblivious to the fact that, you know, they're converting to higher metal content and maybe the internal combustion vehicles, and therefore I have to make sure from a life cycle perspective that mm-hmm. you know to get to true net zero, you have to decarbonize everything down upstream in the supply chain. Um, and they're trying to do that with buyer consortiums. Um, you know what? I let Michael expand on that. I mean, because of the dynamics that he's he's, he's explaining, um, steel is such a huge input into their production. They can't afford to do a wholesale conversion to to 100 green steel. So they yeah. will dabble in. We'll start with 10% and hope that doing the 10% will uh, create enough um, uh, uh, investment uh, potential for people upstream to start doing the things we need to do to drive the cost down. You know, if there's no customers, there will be no learning curve. So, you know, they understand that they need to do something. So that'd be their that'd be their um, uh, potential to start. You know, provi- providing the, the 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 oxygen, if you like, yeah, yeah, to do that, and then, um, but it's a very slow process because they have to they have to do that at a very slow pace because yeah. of the massive impact that it will have on their bottom line, and so we need to do things significantly faster. If we trickle, do this on a trickle down approach like this, and hope to get to net zero by two thousand fifty we'll end up with the mining industry would have grown in order to support the transition for the rest of the world, but we would have shifted the problem to mining. Well, so exactly. Mining has to lead this transition in some case because we're going to be depending on those metals. And You've got to inverse the relationship, the value relationship that you talked about before, but also who's driving who's driving the price. Right. It's we not got the to, downstream. We've got to decarbonize the, the things that we're going to rely on to decarbonize the rest of the things. Yeah. You know, in advance, and we kind of understand that, right? I mean, the shift to EVs has gone in tandem with um, an increasingly rapid greening of the production of the electricity. Yeah. Thank goodness for that, right? I mean, if you were busily shoveling coal into burners to generate the electricity <laughs> to store it in batteries that were mined with diesel trucks, and all you did was stop burning 
highly fuel, you know, gasoline and highly fuel efficient gasoline cars. I don't know that you fixed a problem. Nothing. So the good news is we kind of figured that out um, more by good luck than good planning. But that's what's happened is happening with the grid. Thank goodness. Yeah. As Adrian points out, it has to happen with mining as well. Now, the good news is that we can draw a second um, uh, precedent from the greening of the of the grid with respect to, in some respect, how that has been supported. I won't say paid for because I don't want to overstate the impact, yeah. but it's certainly an important illustration of where I think an answer lies. So there's something called, it started out as renewable energy certificates and then yeah. it turned into virtual power purchase agreements. The VPPAs, I think, yeah. are kind of the, the latest instantiation and, and uh, are seen as, as more credible. So we'll, we'll focus on them for the moment. But what VPPAs do is they allow companies to essentially pay for um, green electricity, even though they use, I'll say, dirty electricity, yeah. um, and claim what's referred to in the carbon space as a scope two net zero position. Yeah. Scope two refers to the emissions generated in the production of electricity. Yeah. Purchased energy more broadly, but for most companies, it's pretty much yeah. electricity. And so this, this focus on, on scope two via VPPAs has been really quite effective. A, a lot of large companies spend real money, millions of dollars yeah. a year, purchasing VPPAs, and that serves to provide a clear demand signal to the generation sector, the electricity generation sector, that gen there is a market for green electricity, you should invest in those assets, and so that's what you see. Right? There's a lot more um, uh, renewable energy um, capacity being added every year, certainly in the United States, than there is in coal and natural mm -hmm. gas. I think this is close enough for this conversation in terms of the facts. I think now there's more renewable generation in the U.S. than there is coal. Yeah. Um, so that's a good news story in a, in a space where there's not a lot of good news. Yeah. yeah. Um, and to some extent, again, I'm being cagey on purpose because I'm not. I can't make a, a, a strong statement about the extent to which this actually funded it. But it is certainly. Um, a mechanism now that continues to support and accelerate the greening of the grid, right? So that's based on a separation, and this is critical, right? That's based on yeah. a separation between the commodities you pay for and the commodities you use, right? Because if you think about how an electrical grid works, you're generating, especially in the U.S., less so in Ontario, where we're recording this, Ontario's grid is something like 90% yeah. zero emission, um, but in other parts of the U.S., it's a very blended generation portfolio. Yeah. They've got coal and natural gas and renewables and hydro and nuclear and all these different yeah. things. And so you can't track the electrons, right? So when you purchase your power from your, from your electricity generator, from your utility, you don't know how it was generated. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to be a, a sport about it and you want to pay for renewable electricity, the, 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 the carbon industry, the risk of overstating the case, has developed VPPAs over a 35-year period that has separated those two things, right? So these are financial instruments that companies yeah. trade, purchase and, uh, and trade and retire in a very sophisticated fashion, all premised on the fact that in order to support the green generation of important commodities, you don't have to actually use the green commodities that you have paid to have produced. Got it. Yeah. And uh, now that depends on one critical element, which is that you actually know <laughs> that you consume electricity. That's right, yeah. And that you know how much electricity you consume. Yeah. Well, 
In the case of electricity, that's easy. You yeah. get a bill every month. You, here's the how many kilowatt hours yeah. you purchased. Yeah. Here's the price per kilowatt hour. Job done. Done. Now I'm going to go back to how much nickel there is in this room. Yeah. Good luck figuring that out. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there are ways you can kind of guess at it that are probably, you know, that, that I'll, I'll argue in a moment are plenty good enough for what we want to do. But when we think about supply chains and we think about, so how much nickel is there really here? A lot of folks want to know the actual answer to that question. The only way you figure that out now is a destructive test and melt it all down and figure it out. Yeah, and that's yeah. not, it's not that, gonna happen. that doesn't work. No. So the electricity market provides a template for what I think we need to do for mining commodities in particular and for all hard to abate commodities in general. So you, you and, and I would say there's a good example early on in, in Toronto, uh, in Ontario as well, Canada, Bullfrog Power, that did exactly what, what Michael said. It, it offered uh, green premium. So if you wanted to um, say that you have decarbonized electricity, I mean, Deloitte would buy for their events, they would buy a, a block of power for that event from, yeah. green power, from, from Bullfrog Power. That would then charge a premium of 20, 30%. And that would then go to the um, uh, that would then lower effectively the cost of that otherwise more expensive electricity, so that it's dispatched by the system operator, knowing that the revenues will be there to make good on the um, on the use of that power. And so that was a market mechanism that people figured out early on. You need to do mm -hmm. something like that yeah. in order to allow the people that want to make those investments to make those investments which otherwise wouldn't have been made because there wouldn't be sufficient revenue to cover mm -hmm. the higher investment they need to make in the earlier days, um, you know, to, to bring you see what that, that does? I'm glad you mentioned that because what that does is it creates demand. Yeah. It creates yeah. customers. And when you think about most of the conversation that's taking place in the commodity space, hydrogen, oh. mining, cement, what's everybody moaning about? They want cheap capital. Yeah. Right. What? Cheap capital doesn't generate revenue. Or government yeah. subsidies, that's cheap capital. <laughs> yeah, or government yeah. subsidies. Capital. Yeah, so if <clears throat> my take would be that if, I can, if we can create a market, if we can find customers willing to pay, and you can see that there's revenue at the other end yeah. of that investment cycle, the world doesn't lack for capital. No, no there's not at all. lots of capital to invest in these things. What it lacks is a clear line of sight to the necessary revenue streams to justify the investment. It's almost as though you know we're 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 drowning, and we think what we need is more water. Yeah, like I, that seems a little upside down to me. So, so on your you, you talked part of this conversation was on the VPPAs, mm -hmm. scope to electrification, and previously we we're talking about you know uh, net zero in the mining industry and connecting the upstream and the right. downstream. So. How could or could the principles of VPPA, VPPAs apply Easy to, for you to say, yeah. scope three? <laughs> yeah, so this is where it gets really technical. And challenging too. Yeah, it, so we're, we're still figuring out how to well, explain this in a straight line. Let, let me ask another yeah. question before we get into the, to, to put a bit of context to it, before we get down into the technical path, is that is, as the mining industry is going down the pathway of net zero, and there's scope one, scope two, they're spending most of their time on scope one and scope two, mm -hmm. and, and hard debate industries as well. Is it fair to say that scope three is well understood and in hand, or there needs to be help, assistance, right. alternative 
approaches sure. for scope threes. Yeah. So I'll back up just a, a step. Um, so we mentioned we defined scope two a minute ago, yeah. which is the carbon generated, the carbon emitted in the generation of, of, of yeah. energy like electricity. Scope one is the carbon emitted um, through the operation of assets that an organization yeah. controls. That's stereotypically yeah. tailpipe emissions, right? Yeah. Burning diesel fuel. Um, it's emissions from things like uh, chemical reactions when producing cement, for example. Diesel trucks, right. whatever. Yeah. And then scope three is um, that's a, that's an everything else bucket. Yeah. Right. It's it's the embodied carbon in all of the things that uh, get that, delivered yeah, to them. It, well. At the, again, at the risk of dis disappearing down a, a different rabbit hole, the, the two biggest buckets are typically what's known as purchase goods and services yeah. and, and uh, capital expenditure. There are others, but for present purposes, let's just think about upstream scope three, yeah. right? which are the emissions embodied in the things you purchase, the assets you operate in order yeah. to run your business. Yeah. I think you have to add that there are downstream ones specifically for fuel companies, and we're ignoring it for the purpose. Yeah, of exactly. So we're going to focus yeah. just. So, so unfortunately, we got to do a little housekeeping. So that yeah, the, 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 the with any luck, there'll be some some real geeks on the other side of this on the other side of the broadcast <laughs> who will want to know that we've tied our shoelaces with respect to the scope of the the scope of the scope conversation. So fair enough. Upstream scope three. And we're talking about purchase goods and services and capital expenditures. So what that means, for example, if, if you're a mine, you're driving a dump truck, it's the carbon that was emitted to generate the steel that became yeah. the dump truck. Yeah. Right? The scope one is the diesel the dump truck burns. Fine. Okay, set that to one side. When any company is attempting to achieve a net zero position, it builds what's called a carbon inventory. And yeah. that carbon inventory is understood in these three categories, scopes one, two, and three. For the vast majority of companies, the average for the U.S. economy is uh, your footprint is about 10-15% uh, scope one, 10-15% scope two, and about 70% scope three. Um, for hard to abate industries, quite different, much higher scope one footprints. Okay. So now the challenge becomes as an organ, as a company. So let's just talk about, oh, I don't know, pick an industry at random, management consulting for no good reason at all. <laughs> um, a management consulting firm probably has a footprint that's 90% scope three. Yeah. And so when it says, okay, I'm going to be net zero, it's got a problem on its hands because 90% of its footprint is out of its hands. Yeah. It depends entirely on all the things that it purchases and how those are created. So when it deals with scope one, it can look at things like, um, uh, natural gas that it's purchasing to heat a building that it might operate. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, when it looks at its scope two, oh, that's easy. I'm just going to write a check and buy a VPPA, yeah. job done. And then it looks at scope three and goes, now what the hell do I do? Yeah. Because yeah. that's pretty tough. And so that's where it, so with that is kind of setting the table around the nature of the challenge that yeah. most organizations face when it comes to managing scope three. The emissions inventory that these companies create is done using what's called an emission factor. Yeah. Right, a spend-based emission factor. There are other ways to do it. The vast majority of companies do it this way. They will look up an EF, an emission factor, from somebody like the EPA, right, the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S., and it will tell them. It will say things like, when you buy office furniture, the carbon footprint of office furniture, this isn't the actual number, but close enough to illustrate the point, the carbon footprint for office furniture is 1.2 kilos of carbon um, per dollar. Yeah. Per dollar of a... Per dollar of office on, furniture. Yeah, yeah. Of and, revenue from office hmm, furniture. Yeah. yeah. 
So when you, at, at purchaser prices, so when yeah. you spend a dollar on office furniture, every dollar you spend is 1.2 kilos of carbon. Yeah. Obviously, that's an economy-wide industry average. Yeah. It won't tell you specifically how much carbon is in this particular yeah. you know, table that you're sitting at, but that's the way these inventories are built because there's no other way to do it. It is better than nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. That's an excellent point, right? We want these measurements and these, we want these estimates to be good enough to motivate effective action. Yes. As long yeah. as they do that, we're happy, right? We don't need um, accuracy. We need effectiveness. Yeah. So this is more or less right versus precisely wrong. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so that, that gets you part of the way, right? So now we know kind of where that, where that comes from. The interesting thing about those emission factors is that what is, is under that particular hood is a set of estimates about all of the upstream commodities that were required to create office furniture. Yeah. Right. So these are compiled in the U.S. by the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Um, every major economy builds its own input-output tables that generates similar estimates about all of the inputs required to generate any given output. So it will tell you that, oh, if you're making office furniture, guess what? Here's how much nickel you need. Yeah. Here's, how much, here, all the way, here's how much soybean oil you require. You read these tables and you're shocked at what goes in to yeah. make any particular thing you might be consuming. And so rather than then turn that into an emission factor, what I'm suggesting is simply leave it at the level of the commodity. And yeah. you can say, hey, look, in exactly the same way, and I do mean exactly, in exactly the same way you are saying, here's how much electricity I consume, I can now say, here's how much nickel I, I consume. consume. Yeah. And in the or you're responsible for existing yes. and using. Yeah, well, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 consume it. You, you, you buy precisely zero yeah. nickel. But you're using it. But you use... Yep. Right. So, it, and for the, with these tables, if you were a, um, again, to pick somebody at random, if you were a $30 billion consulting organization, you use, are responsible for the production of almost $10 million a year of nickel. Of nickel. Yeah. Well, now I can pull the same trick that I did with electricity. I can just do it for nickel. Yeah. I know how much electricity I buy. I can buy green electricity instead. I know how much nickel I'm responsible for. Well, I can cover the price premium required to produce $10 million of nickel at 10% the existing carbon footprint. Yep. And then I get to claim that that portion of my scope three inventory has now been zeroed out. Yeah. And so it's, uh, I've referred to this over the last several months as we've been, as we've been building these models. It, it is, I think, a small insight, but it solves a big problem. Absolutely. Because it connects the end consumer, the end user, with the upstream producer and bypasses the incredibly complex, enormously financially yeah. constrained set of intermediaries and says, look, we don't need to worry about you. You guys run your business the way you run your business. I'm going to, or leap all of that, provide a price premium to someone who's willing to provide that quantity of nickel at a carbon footprint that I find acceptable. And then you just sell it into the market like always and sell it for the, at market prices. Nobody, I'm paying the premium. Nobody in the middle has to care. But making that happen requires, unfortunately, right? This is, again, we're back to you can't fix the system from within it. Yes. You fix that, you create this new market, and now we're back to what disruption in, in here exactly. is in. Exactly, yeah. If you're going to respond to that market demand, you need to create a completely different production function. Yeah. And that's something I defer to Adrian's insight on what that needs to look like. And you said create a new market. Is there all... Uh already not that market emerging 
from you know like young people who, for example, like way down in 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 the value stream. I just I of, just like of, to, of demanding these sorts of things. I just like to add to to Michael's point, maybe to to um, to put it in a different ways. So, so we we're going to be keeping allowing companies to keep two books, the actual stuff that they purchase and how it's sort of uh, you know yeah. um, explained in the purchase agreement, and then the list of commodity that the combination of all of that yeah. translated into a, a list of definitive commodities from this input output table represent. So you'd go to the CEO and say, "Here's your new purchasing order yeah. that you're responsible for, um, for 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 existing in the economy every year, translated in terms of commodities." Nobody has ever seen that. Yeah. They see what they themselves, you know, consume in terms of energy that creates emissions. They see the electricity, and then they see stuff that they bought. Yeah, well, like Michael, furniture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what Michael is not saying is like, you know, this furniture and that tripod, you know, they have nickel. So let's consolidate the nickel in all of your products. And let's do that in a structured way so that you can now say, oh, my goodness, now I can see what commodities I'm responsible for. And then you can attach an emissions factor to each to, to yeah. what it takes to produce each one of those commodities. But only a scope one emissions factor. Scope yeah. one. Yeah. The only thing you care about are the actual emissions generated yeah. by the production of that commodity. So when you go to the nickel mine, you don't say, I need you to go buy zero carbon dump trucks. Yeah. You say, no, no, no. You go to the mine and you say, I need you to produce zero emissions nickel. Yeah. However Why? you do that yeah. is up Why? to Why? Because the, the steel that the mine consumes in order to generate the nickel shows up yeah. in my responsibility for steel. upstream steel. Yeah. And so I will be paying to produce zero carbon steel in proportion to all of the other uses of steel yeah. in my entire supply chain. Yeah. And this is important because one of the things that it's easy to forget sometimes is um, scope two and scope three emissions are an accounting convention. Yeah. The only actual emissions are scope one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if we if we got rid of all the scope one emissions, there wouldn't be any scope two or scope three emissions, and that's a good thing, right? Yeah. So I'm not criticizing the double counting of carbon accounting. It's there for because it's solving a different problem. Uh, yeah. 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 But the the description the the, the solution. In scare quotes that, that that we're sketching here is one that connects um that turns consumers into buyers yeah yeah exactly and to address your earlier observation you know doesn't that market already exist or and, starting well the end no unfortunately and and it would and the reason i say no sort of definitively is that you know, folks can say all all they want. Oh, I really want you know green nickel yeah. in my uh in my new tv or better yet, I'd like green nickel and the steel that was in the truck that delivered. That demand is so dispersed and so distant and so far upstream and so inchoate that there's absolutely no way for that demand signal to coalesce and to become something that actually changes yeah, decision-making yeah. on the London Metals Exchange. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. It doesn't work. Yeah. And right? even if they had, you know, to the point, even if they had the money, I have the will, they understand the need, there's no mechanism to get it back. What they'll have to do is to pay their direct supplier, which they hope will pay their direct suppliers. Yeah, and, and I got a funny and, feeling everybody's going to want to take their piece of that margin all the way right, along of course, the supply yeah, chain. Yeah, yeah. By the time it gets to the mining industry again, there's nothing left, yeah. you know. And so, so it's really. I mean, I, I in our earlier days, I thought um, a good analogy would be sort of the wormhole. We're creating yeah. a wormhole that connects the the actually creation of this of this commodity at the R2 bait sector directly to the consumer that's responsible for that having to exist in the economy and sort of 
basically you know bring time and space together with these two constituents and to michael's point it's really important to understand that what we're doing is we're addressing a, a scope three problem at the far downstream side of the economy yeah, yeah. and that is used to address the scope one problem at the far upstream side yeah. on the hard to abate sector and the hard to abate commodities i think represent something like 60 percent of total global emissions yeah, yeah. so you know, and that and it's hard to abate, not because the technology doesn't exist. I yeah. think I think we also create language that convince ourselves cognitively, therefore, that oh yeah, that's hard. We'll do that last. We'll do the easy stuff first, which is tailpipe emissions and stuff. We leave the hard yeah. stuff for last because that's that makes sense to yeah. start with the hard stuff. But it is hard not because the technology doesn't exist. It's hard because the economics doesn't make sense, yeah. and the economic doesn't make sense because of the market failure that that Michael explained. So you have to fix the market failure to actually say it's not that hard if somebody would pay for it because you already know how to do it. The technology exists. And, and we're not talking about funding innovation in terms of you have a great idea, you know, let's find customers to fund those ideas. That's what venture capital yeah, exactly. and angels yeah. are used for. We're sure of at the point where, where we're saying this technology is a TRL-8. It needs a substantial pilot and many of them to start driving the cost down to inspire um, wholesale adoption of that, yeah. right? Uh, the money doesn't exist for that at that scale because the investors that have that money to invest would not invest at that risk profile. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to create, to change the risk profile for the hard to abate sector to adopt those technologies by solving the, the, the market failure. So it's not hard. Yeah. It's hard because of the market failure. And well, this I, is the problem we're solving. I think there's three pieces to that before I go back to the problem you're solving, what you said, Michael, about um, this is the models and this is what we've laid out to what's next. But um, back to the original start of the conversation and what you just said, Adrian, is that part of the challenge within the hard debate sectors, mining being one of them, is, is also you can't solve it from within because of the, the challenges of how the industry does their business. Well, right? that's, that's, that's a bit of a different problem. Well, I know, but, but, that, but, it's, part, but it's part that's of That's one it, right? piece yeah, of it. Yeah. Then there's the market failure right. then. Well, there's, there's justification yeah. for them doing it the way they're doing it because doing it differently involves risk. So Absolutely. it's not just the adoption or the availability of technologies. Then how do you integrate that technology in a mind design paradigm that has focused Absolutely. in a very specific way to reduce yeah. the cost? Because commodities are supply and demand, right? Yeah. There's, there seems to be very little differentiation value. Um, we're now creating the opportunity that in a, in a world that, that uh, wants to decarbonize, the ones that could lead could, could command a green premium. Yeah. That now becomes a challenge for mining companies wanting to dip their toes into doing something different because it requires them to sort of now guess, what would that premium be? Would that ever justify me doing the harder stuff because we have to go outside of our paradigm. That's when you start right. using renewable electricity, it doesn't show up in the way that coal fire based yeah. load power yeah. show up. So it's not just a question of plugging the technology in. You have to change part of the operations. You have to change your planning paradigm. You have to create more flexibility in your plans. Yep. That introduces a level of organizational process design risk that the mining companies yeah. really don't have the ability to, to, uh, um, to accept because of the... Yeah, well, I, I don't think it's much will. I think it's that, um, you know, I think uh, Maynard Keynes, when he tried to change the budgetary process of the U.S., said uh, the problem is not coming up with new ideas, it's escaping from the old ones. Yeah. Because yeah. we're reducing yeah. the risk by doing the familiar. Uh, we're not having to do something different. That has some risk associated with it. So 
But who's paying for that risk? The shareholders are not willing to do that because they're That's competing right. against commodity companies that wouldn't accept that risk, except yeah. collectively, we, somebody has to accept the risk. Yeah. So we're trying to create the environment where we're saying, yes, the technology exists. Um, there's still a lot that needs to be done to drive the cost down, but technically, um, it's at a point that it can be deployed. Um, financially, it's too expensive for the mining company to bear all that cost. And the risk of integration is something that we don't always talk about. And now the need to go and do something different um, where we haven't been trained because it's a new paradigm, all of that is associated with the risk. But what if you can quantify that risk and say, listen, I'm not asking you to take any of those risks if it is associated with this, the thing that I want as the non-traditional customer, which says, yeah. I want to buy the dimension of performance that is, I want a mine that is at the level of ESG, and let's just focus on decarbonization for a yeah. second, but also all the other stuff. I, I want you to bring a mine to market that looks like that. You go and design that as your objective function and leave the finances out as being the, 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 the driving constraint. And we'll understand afterwards what hole do we need to plug in order to fill that financial deficit, if you like, to give me the dimension of performance that I require, mm -hmm. which is low-carbon or zero-carbon commodities. And then when you look at it in that way, I think people um, will have the ability to design that. But we start mind design with a financial constraint embedded in our heads. Yeah, yeah. And, and that causes us to, 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 to make decisions which we have to make to be prudent in basically be able to have a sustainable going concern financial entity as a mining company. And that's very hard. So none of this will go with the flip of a switch. But if we don't have the important switch to flip, you know, none of the other stuff can happen. And so... And once you start relaxing those, once you flipped it and said, my objective function is minimizing carbon, then all of a sudden things like the size of the mine, the, the, uh, um, the value of the ore body, all of the, the size of the ore body, all of these things now become variables that you can play with. Yeah. Right? So the mining industry is stuck in a paradigm. It's 17 years to light up a new mine yeah. in, 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 in Canada. Why? Well, it's 17 years because you've got embedded assumptions about the size of the right. ore body, the, you got to sweat the assets, Bar the capital impact. density. So all, of the, yeah. all of a sudden, yeah. what if you said, well, no, no, time out. The issue is 10% of the carbon footprint. And now it's going to be renewable electricity, um, uh, to borrow the phrase, right? You fit the work to the power, not the power to the work. You yeah. do all of, all of a sudden you're exploiting much smaller ore bodies, much higher quality exactly. for shorty periods of time that are lower capital intensity. And folks look at you like you're insane because they, but that's not how the industry works to which the only rational answer is, yeah, that's the problem. Exactly. And yep. so yep. to pick up on a thread you, you, you tugged on earlier, you mentioned some of the auto companies, for example, looking at uh, ensuring supply. First of all, I think many of them are motivated um, at the risk of claiming to read their minds. I think they're, they're motivated uh, about securing supply more than sustainably. Uh, let me, I'll soften it and say yeah. at least as much as they're worried yeah. about carbon footprint. So what we're describing here, a situation where companies like law firms and consulting firms can, can legitimately purchase a credible net zero status, yeah. and those are important modifiers, right, yeah. um, is that they become supplemental customers, right? So it's not or, it's and. And, yeah. and so if, the, if major consumers of these commodities are saying, look, I really want to take this seriously, 
and they're 40% of the required demand, well, let's go find the other 60. Yeah. And that becomes a negotiated process, like it always is with your suppliers, but it looks even better than it would under normal circumstances, right? And so mine, miners look at it and say, okay, I'm going to make a guess about what the market's going to be 20 years from now, and that's going to drive how I design the mine and the cap. Really, what 20-year what guess has anybody made that was even close to right, except for the fact that it'll be 20 years later? Other than that... Zero. You don't know. And so in the model we're describing, we're saying, hey, wait a minute. If I can build a demand consortium of companies that want to be net zero 40, what we can do with the models we've described is say, here's at a minimum the quantity of green nickel um, that you are prepared to subsidize. And all you have to do, all you have to do, yeah. is show up in 2040 with the agreed upon quantity of green nickel. and it's an advanced purchase agreement. There's teeth in it, yeah. right? right? So you've got auto companies, law firms, consulting firms, uh, consumer products companies, banks, financial institutions of all different stripes, all showing up and say, yes, we're in this for real. No money up front, right? It's like a sale at the local furniture shop. No money down, no payments for 18 months. And wh when you show up in 2040 with those green commodities, we will then pay you the price premium that we agreed yeah. to. What does that all look like? We'll have to figure it out the hard way. To Adrian's point, it will be a bit of an iterative process. If it takes you eight months and a million five to design a mine, this isn't going to work. Yeah, yeah. If you can think about it much more flexibly and it costs you you know, $20,000 to do a six-week iteration to come up with an estimate for what that right. will look, now you've got something to sell. Yeah. All the way back to where we started. You can't fix the system from inside the system. Yeah. But if we can find you customers who are willing to pay... For this particular attribute, that's the outside the, coming now, in. Now I've given. Now I've. Frankly, I feel like we've removed the excuse. Yeah, we found you the customers. We know folks will pay. We know that they will pay for that commodity. How much? Don't know. That's your to change the to, to change the, the the metaphor. That's your nickel up front. You're going to have to do <laughs> some work to say, look, here's what I think I can sell, and now let's. That will have a, a we'll have a grown up conversation about who's willing to pay for what. And I think the 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 um, having the automotive companies involved, I think, is an important part. Let's say who, who could be the lead initial customers or something like, like that. Like an anchor so, tenant. An anchor tenant. You, yeah, you exactly. probably need a couple. Yeah, maybe, but but I say like for 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 a commodity because I think that provides credibility that okay, Volvo has vetted that the Swedish steel company is going to make green steel, yeah. so you know they're just going to buy an insignificant volume in terms of what we need. But if that's the technology and that's the company, how about we then show up with other people that have more money to say, yes. we now need yeah. to go back and actually redesign that to be much more substantial. But I think having those lead anchor tenants, if you like, involved in this in this new market mechanism provides the credibility that, you know, maybe in the initial period, the, um, the rest of the market that don't have those skills and understanding lacks. So yeah. I think... So I think it's not, again, it's not either or. It's not the direct supply chain or this, to Michael's point. I think it's yeah. both. You know, yeah. you, you need the credible value chain understanding, the technical understanding, and then you need to bring massive amounts of additional subsidies to help make this happen. And, and back to the point I made about having more than one anchor tenant, because you're, you're going to be looking at multiple Competing industries trying maybe, to do yeah. that. Yeah. You know, like use management consulting firm as an example, law houses, whatever, financial in institutions. You get a couple of those so you can see the applicability of this across 
the entire market versus we're going to focus on automotive because they buy or steal. No, 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 no. People see it. Well, it turns everybody into a customer for everything. Exactly. And that's the point, right? Yeah. So instead of virtual power purchase agreements, VPPAs, yeah. it becomes virtual commodity purchase agreements. Exactly. VCPAs, God help me. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's it, it creates the market that is currently missing. And, and the numbers are not trivial. So th yeah. there's a, a very specific example in the aviation fuel space. So it's uh, an organization called SABA, the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance. <coughs> in fact, Deloitte is part of this organization. Yeah. And um, we were one of the original founders, as I recall, mm -hmm. you know, sort of fewer than a dozen companies back in 2019, 2020. Um, now there are several hundred that are yeah. part of it. And these are companies that are um, that pay hard cash um, for the production of biojet fuel, yeah. which when it's burned is, is about 80% lower carbon than the than burning jet A in, in commercial in commercial yeah. aircraft. Reasonable people can have different opinions about whether that's actually sufficiently lower carbon. I'm going to put that off to one side for the moment. That's a that's it's, an it's an empirical question. It's better than nothing. Yeah, and it's an important <laughs> well. There's some people even disagree about that, but I'm not yeah. picking that fight, right? Yeah. My point is that those are empirical questions. We need to get the right answers. But as a market structure, it's exactly the right idea. Yeah. Because what it does is it says to organizations like Deloitte, like law firms, folks that fly around a lot, look, you don't actually buy fuel. You buy airplane tickets. But in exactly the same way the power grid can't track the electrons, yeah. the, air, the airlines can't track the molecules, and they can't say to Deloitte, here, like it just doesn't work. So you've they've separated the physical commodity from the environmental attributes of the commodity. And as a result, they are in the process of getting approved by the appropriate voluntary market standard setters a SAF C, a sustainable aviation mm -hmm. fuel certificate. And so this would be um, an attestation that you have paid for the abatement of certain level of a certain quantity of yep. carbon, and you can declare that and retire it when it's approved against your declared scope three inventory and have a credible lower scope three footprint as a consequence of having abated upstream scope one. Yeah. Yeah. Take a breath. Right. I mean, this is always, it's 37 dominoes that have to tip over, but, but it works. And the cost per ton abated is pretty significant, right? It's in the hundreds of dollars a ton. Yeah. And so if somebody said to you, look, I'll give you $300 a ton, on your copper, if it's if it's ten percent the carbon footprint, yeah. that's it. Three hundred bucks a ton, free money. Well, not quite free. You got to earn it. But there's there's hard, hard cash that yeah. companies are are have 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 a demonstrated willingness to pay. Yeah. And so it's not as though it's total jazz hands here, right? I mean, we we actually have existence proofs where these kinds of markets function, in the case of VPPAs, in the yep, electricity case, exactly. they function very efficiently at very high volumes. I think the VPPA market in North America is it predicted to be $30 billion by 2030. Very big deal. Um, the willingness to pay these organizations is in the hundreds of dollars of ton yeah. uh, per ton of carbon abated. Um, when it comes to mining, I think it's like 80% scope one. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of tons to abate. Yeah, yeah. I, there's reason to think this could work. And so um, the missing pieces are the things we've just been describing, which is actual serious, hey, no kidding conversations about, hmm, we could produce this quantity at this carbon footprint over this time period. 
who wants to who wants to buy it. Yeah. So having created the very real possibility of a viable demand side, now it falls to the supply side to see in that the possibility of creating a parallel system that operates outside of the existing mine planning production, right? Because we know how to do this, right? Now we've created, we've created an environment in which disruptive innovation is now possible. And how to do that from an organizational perspective is a solved problem, yeah. right? There's no mystery here, right? It's like losing weight. You know, for the vast <laughs> majority of people, you want to lose weight in a healthy, safe way, it's largely a function of eating less and exercising more. The reason we keep asking the question is because we don't like the answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a way to do this. And so my hope is that, uh, that now there's an opportunity to engage in some serious conversations on the supply side to take advantage of this, of this nascent demand. And, and that, that, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's maybe a good, good point to talk about you know, the evolution of uh, how disruptive innovation looks like. So, that's sort of, so this is the sort of the foothold market that we're creating with non, um, non-traditional customers. Yeah. So you're creating this new mine that is selling into the normal commodity market at normal commodity prices, but there's this environmental attribute that indirect customers are purchasing. So, so you're actually, you know, you're splitting your customers, so you're solving a problem for non, uh, non-traditional customers. But do you not have to do that forever and do you know forever be reliant on this market mechanism? That's not necessarily how disruptive innovation works, right? So, so this non, um, non-traditional customer allow you to do the learning that you need to do to become more competitive to eventually compete with the mainstream market, yeah. which in disruptive innovation is the up-market mark, march, I guess, right? Yeah. So here we're, here we're marching up-market by lowering the cost through the learning that is provided by doing stuff from the funding that we get from non-traditional customers. So the idea would be that 20 years from now, the companies that have started down this track with this non-traditional market funding mechanism will have learned so much and the technology would have proved so much working with their suppliers that it is now lower cost but retains the environmental attributes and the dimension of performance that we really care about, which is zero emissions. And so now the incumbents that didn't do this innovation, that stuck with the normal route, will now become uncompetitive in a market that may have now paid more green premiums. But even in a market with no green premiums, you will now have suppliers showing up at the London Metals Exchange with attributes that the world needs and desires without the additional cost. And at that point, maybe we figured out carbon tax. So the people that buy normally from the commodity suppliers will have to now pay those those carbon taxes. So you'd understand that the market at that point, specifically the automotive companies and the large buyers will say, I am not buying from a dirty supplier, yeah. uh, dirty as in terms of uh, carbon, and then have to be responsible for the carbon tax when I can buy from a company that have zero emissions metals, even at no premium. So this really fits the classic disruption yeah. theory that yeah. we start at the foothold market. That's an excellent point. You wouldn't want, I wouldn't want anyone to walk away with the view that somehow this is the forever solution, that you're no. constantly selling environmental attributes uh, upstream to non forever, forever yeah. and ever. Yeah. I'd, I don't think that, I mean, in theory it could work as a practical matter. I, think it's, I don't think it's sustainable. I think the VPPA market will ultimately disappear because it'll all be green electricity. You won't need it anymore. And, that, and that's not a failure. That's what success looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so yeah. similarly, I would see these advanced purchase agreements for these virtual commodity advanced purchase agreements 
they would come with uh, uh, a timestamp on them. Yeah. Right. It would it would start when you light up the mine in twenty thirty six, and it turns off five years later. Yeah. And so the, for those five years on the demand side it means that the companies that are purchasing those environmental attributes will be the only organizations anywhere who are credibly net zero. Yeah. Because yeah. everybody else, PS, is stuck with an, an emission factor yeah. that is attached to industry average emissions, yeah. which won't be 90% decarbonized. Yeah. So everybody else is going to be stuck with dealing with their own scope one and two, wringing their hands over the classic scope three problem that they won't be yeah. able to fix. So if there are... 2,000, 3,000, you know, large global companies that sign up on the demand side for this, they will be the only ones who get to take a bow yep. and say, hey, no kidding, for real, we are net zero. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, we provided the, the activation energy is the phrase that, that Adrian coined. We've provided the activation energy to put the entire industry on the path to global yeah. net zero. Because the thing about net zero as a competitive advantage among companies like consumer products organizations is that <laughs> net zero is only worth achieving if everybody else also gets there, yeah. right? So you can't think of it as winning the race. You have to think of it as showing the way. Yeah. And if you get there first and you enjoy a five, six-year lead time advantage where you're able to, to bask legitimately yeah. right, in, in, in the halo of good that you've done, that's great. That's, you, you will have earned it. You will have paid for it. And then when everybody else catches up, that will have been your doing too. That's right. And so I think the... Um, Which is essentially yeah. what Elon Musk did with Tesla, right? Yeah. It, it, and you'll it, be moving it's not on able, to the next. It's not able next. for one company to decarbonize the economy, but it's, it's, it's possible for them to show the way. Exactly. And to show the way, it's such a, you know, and then the first 10 year people ostracized them. It's like, well, yeah, it's not going to work. This is not going to work. Yes, because of it's course, not a point yeah. solution. He needed to build the ecosystem and it wasn't yeah. visible for people until it was done. Yeah. And then they went... Well, that works. I like that. Yeah, that works. Everybody yeah, wants exactly. it, and we're now behind. And so now it's catalyzed the rest of the industry to change. So so much so that the governments have now said, well, he's shown that it is possible, and we're now going to put leg legislation and regulation in place that you're not allowed to sell or manufacture these cars anymore. I mean, that's that's as clear a strategy signal for anybody to say, I know what my strategy is. I, I, I need to follow this path. Otherwise, there's no path to follow. Yeah. And so what, what is the analogy that we can create for, for the upstream commodities, which, which is not so clear for people, which is what we're trying to do now and saying, do exactly that. So, so and if we don't, and the point is, if we do not do this now, it, it doesn't help for us to start doing this 20, 30 years from now. Too late. Uh, because mining in certain areas, specifically lithium and others, are going to have to scale in order to support this yeah. transition. We want them to bring those plans forward that allow them to scale in the way that you know, is aligned with what we ultimately want to achieve. Or we're going to lock in 50 years of high carbon production. Yeah. Right. Or, or it, we can go down a huge rabbit hole about is lithium going to be here for the next 20 or 30 years or do we that's have to the redefine other, transportation? That's, that, that's, the right. other, that's, that's the other significant yeah. challenge in doing any forecasting now because of innovation and how it changes the dependency on t different commodities. We now that's have right. sodium batteries, yeah. uh, even with copper. We have so much going on in terms of innovation that, you know, I think Goldman Sachs are, are suggesting by 2040 we will have 60 million tons of copper yep. demand. There's a paper out by um, uh, BMO that just suggests that there may be 20 million tons of copper destruction in the demand forecast because yep. of innovation. You know, becoming much smarter about how we use copper, yep. you know, room temperature or... or 
you know, um, liquid nitrogen temperature, superconductivity, just a yep. whole bunch of other stuff. You know, people going away from copper altogether and using other metals, aluminum. And so it is a very uncertain world out yep. there. And in that environment, mining companies have to make investments based on assumptions around pricing, demand, because it's a commodity market. We're saying, can we reduce some of that uncertainty so that you can focus on the things that's really important, you know, uh, when you bring those mines to life. And I just want to add another thing as well, what Michael said, is that these um, certificates don't last forever and they may have declining, yeah. declining subsidies because we want to incent you to actually do the learning that's, that's right. required. Yeah. If you don't do any learning, we won't do what, 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 what um, uh, Tesla is doing in catalyzing. Every year they get better, get cheaper as they learn yeah. more. That's how they can now look at the Tesla 2 model because they built the roadster, which is super expensive, and then they learned. And so m m miners will say, yeah, but we, we're going to be building a mine and it's going to last for 40 years. And you're going <laughs> to you're going to pull the rock from under us in five years. And then what if we haven't learned fast enough? But it's again going back to who said you have to build a big mine that lasts 40 yeah. years? <laughs> who said you cannot build a mine that has a five year life on a small ore body so that in that five years you exhaust the minerals and go down the learning curve and then the mine uh, production and the credits um, terminate at the same time. And then the next mine that you're starting to plan now already with the intention that it's going to be a lower cost, you can sign parallel contracts and get yeah. going on that. And so it's a staggered approach. It's, we, have to, we have to get away from the orthodoxies we use in thinking about mining when we want to leverage the capacity of this, this, this new uh, market mechanism to really accelerate us to doing something differently. And, that's, and, and it's fantastically yeah. exciting, I think, for miners because, you know, my son, eight years old, um, I have to take him away from the computer because he wants to play Minecraft. <laughs> you know, kids like this. I think the mining industry will draw lots of people to it if it can unlock uh, this level of innovation that, um, that people will be attracted to. Yeah. And there's lots to be done. The world is going to be dependent on this. If mining do not succeed, we do not succeed. Yeah. And so it's very exciting. We just have to create the right milieu and the right mechanisms and then create the right context and, and, um, well, and, and it, get going. It, it comes, what you just said, Adrian, comes back to a conversation we had 10 years ago about modular mining. Exactly. Assets, you're done in five years, right, versus planning for 20 or 30 or 40. The, and the discussion we had in 2018 in Calgary at the Deloitte office is the, the um, what do you call it, world-class asset is not a contiguous asset, right? right? That's... It's That's dependent on the lens you look at it, right? And if you look at a lens with certain constraints, yeah. many of those ore bodies that you used to, or, or, or the kind of ore bodies that you were looking for that fit the constraints of the lens are not available anymore. Yeah. So suddenly you say, it's really hard to bring a mine to market now. None of them have financial feasibility. Yeah. It's like you're looking at the wrong lens. It's hard to change the lens because that involves risk. But what if you can attach the environmental attributes that somebody's willing to pay for, and then also exactly. you know help you then pay for the risk of um, you know doing things differently? And break and you those bundle it all. It's right, and then bundle it all together and and um, have a go at it. Yeah. yeah. So so a lot of, a lot of talk around like all of this is really cool, <laughs> and uh, the idea of the VCPPs, virtual commodity purchase agreements, purchase yeah. agreement V. VCPA, sorry, I had, had an extra P. So the two of you have been, and I'm assuming others have been working on this model for probably a, a while, several months, years, whatever. 
where is it now? Like, have you talked to mining companies? Have you talked to suppliers? Are you pushing it in turn? Where is it? And where do you think it needs to go to get this actually moving? Yeah, so we've just now, I think, gotten to the point that I'm sufficiently confident that we just tied our shoelaces on the technical yeah. features of this thing. So we can we can run the numbers, we can do the matrix algebra, we're appropriately yeah. applying, we understand where emission factors, how they're calculated, yeah. what the implications... So I mean, it's been about not quite a year and a half, but it's been you know, 14, 16 months yeah. of, of making sure that it all tucks and ties. In parallel with that, along the way, we've been sort of beating the bushes, talking to anybody foolish enough to listen to us about what we have in mind. And that has progressed, I'm happy to say, to the point that we're having, um, I'd say, conversation zero, right, with a number of, uh, with a couple of different mining companies. Awesome. And we've had um, some very positive responses from what I'll call the demand side of the equation. Yeah. So consumer products companies, pharmaceutical organizations, others, where they are... Um, making net zero commitments, and then when they look under the hood and realize, oh, crap. Discover. They, 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 <laughs> There's that's a discovery what, process. Yeah, that's, that's what that means. <laughs> yeah. um, and they, they've been, uh, I'm happy to say, very complimentary around the insight that the um, uh, uncovering the upstream commodities they rely upon. So we, we did some, we were involved in uh, some conversations with a pharmaceutical company, and we said, you know, over 6% of your scope three footprint, and 6%, just to put that in context, that's a really big number. That's in the top 10 of commodities, right? Because scope three is a long- That yeah. makes up your- Yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes up your scope three. Scope three is, is a long tail problem, not a Pareto problem, yeah. right? So it's not like there's five or six things that are 80% of your scope three, right? Most organizations are looking at 150, 200 yeah. different yeah. commodities, right? So 6% is a big number, that's yeah. in the top 10. And we said 6% of your scope three footprint comes from grain farming. And they said, but we don't buy any grain. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why this is a helpful lens, <laughs> right? Because it shows you the upstream commodities that, that really matter, right? That are really rolling up to become your scope three problem. Yeah. Because if you look at your scope three problem in terms of what you actually buy, it's sitting in things like legal services. Yeah. And, le and law firms are 94% scope three. So what do you, how are you supposed to fix that problem? So some conversation on the demand side, some conversations on the supply side. The last piece of that puzzle is the standard setters in the ball. Well, well before no. that, I mean, we're also having now the demand side and the supply side. We're sort of facilitating conversations between them because the supply side says, yeah, that sounds really an interesting mechanism and, and we'd like to sign up, but what if there's no buyers on the other side? Yeah. And the buy side says, yeah, we'd like that. It fits our strategy. What's are, they, are, they, yeah. are there any yeah. mines willing to do that? And what's the premium we have to pay? Yeah. And so we're sort of the facilitators in the middle. And now actually in, in the wormhole, we now have both sides of the, of the equation yeah. starting to have you know, preliminary conversations. And I would say that this itself is an innovation as well. What yeah. we're proposing is a market innovation. Yeah. And we're at probably TRL three or four. Yeah. And so, you know, all the bench work has been done. Now it's getting uh, to have a, a prototype, you know, yeah. a, a transaction to be done. Yeah. And then, but because it's not constrained with physical requirements, it's, you know, it's something that can rapidly transition through to TRL 9. 
because yeah. we're not relying on having to go build stuff to do stuff yeah. physically. You know, it's all digital, it's contracting, it's yeah. getting the right parties involved, it's organization. No, we have to figure out something harder. We just have to get people to change their minds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a whole that's other that's, discussion. That's, 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 I got the wrong degree for that one. That's the wall in front one. of yeah. us in the material somewhere. And, the, uh, but, yeah. the, and part of that is, the, is conversations with the standard setters in the voluntary market. Yeah. Right? So you think about things like the greenhouse gas protocol, in yeah. particular, Bureau Gold Standard, other places that... that, that um, in good faith, right, um, want to provide guidance for organizations so that when those organizations follow those rules, they achieve the outcomes yeah. we want to achieve, right? So back to the topic, and, and I, you know, I don't speak for them, but I, I think in good faith they are looking for ways to create um, actionable guidance, yeah. right? I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't think they're necessarily hung up on making sure that it's right to the seventh decimal place yeah. if that compromises effectiveness. Um, and the good news there. Um, talking with some folks in that space as well. So I think there is language in the greenhouse gas protocol. They've introduced this concept of supply sheds, for example, as a way to begin to break the connection between decarbonizing a particular upstream commodity and yeah. actually consuming that commodity and taking credit for that decarbonization. Right? So they understand that supply chains are enormously complex and very often, as a consequence, quite opaque. And so they, they, they can't say... In every single instance, if you de if you're a food processor and you de and you have lower carbon beef, but you can't track the specific animals that end up in your products, yeah. Yeah. they're saying, well, if we insist on that, we're going to undermine effective action. So no, we want to relax those constraints. So I think there's room for the kind of thing that I'm describing. There's an organization called the um, the Advanced Indirect Mitigation Platform, aimplatform.org, uh, I think. Uh, and they're working on something quite similar, right? But again, in, in a slightly more aggressive way, mm -hmm. saying that as you look at the uh, exactly this space, frankly, as you look at the hard-to-abate commodities and you look at the complexity and the opacity of the supply chains and you look at all of the constraints that we've looked at, right? We're not, it's not like we've discovered something that nobody else noticed. Yeah. Um, we're trying to put our ore uh, in the water and, uh, and, and help move the boat forward. So there, there's reason to think, I'll call them green shoots, um, in all three of those, in all three of those, uh, those, those domains, right? Supply side, demand side, standard setting mm -hmm. bodies. And that's, uh, um, that's enough to uh, keep, us, keep us positive. Uh, Get started. Yeah, because yeah, we keep working on this. So if you wasn't referring to underground, undersea mining with ore in the water, just to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not even going there. <laughs> we have to fix what's on the on the surface of the earth first. So, Adrian, you said tier all three, but it can move pretty quickly. Michael, you've talked about you've had discussions with companies on on both ends just to make sure you've got the two of them right. They have to be connected, or it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. When do you think you're going to get this? Do, do you have an idea? Yeah. yeah what do we say? Like what, what, what do we say about not being able to predict stuff? I'm I'm not gonna. I'm not no, even going to guess. It's yeah. hope. If you're no, trying to push this, are you trying to get something done by like this year, next year? Uh, when would yes. you like to see the first? Well, last year is when well, I'd like course. to see it. But yeah. um, I don't know. It, 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 I would guess that if two years from now, if we haven't pulled it off, then it, then it may be it may be beyond us. Yeah. Um, you know, I I would I would continue to believe it's a great idea, but maybe it's just not one that I'm able to put in the end zone. Um, I think we 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 can't be driving this by ourselves. It has to be a collaborative effort. I think the latent the demand pathway. is there. Yeah. I think if you look at what Apple has tried to do with Elisa's by um, going upstream and saying, I want to be able to say to my customers, 
of iPhones that you will have true zero yeah. aluminum. Yeah. So it didn't use this mechanism, but it's the same principle. There was a latent yeah. need on the companies selling products to direct consumers to be able to have that value proposition and live it. Um, and then they went to the Quebec government and Rio Tinto and, and, and Alcoa and they created a, an electrode that doesn't emit any carbon, yeah. right? Only oxygen with nickel in it, inside of it. And so what they got from it is not just, hey, like we have a decarbonized supply chain now, we won't have to pay any credits. They see that as their responsibility as a very large and the most valuable company in the world to lead, just like Tesla, right? And so they're doing these things. Um, but it's it's very hard for other companies to do the same thing. They may not have the balance sheet that... Yeah. that uh, Some of these that organizations are, are categories of one, right? Yeah. And, and I was talking to someone in the space who said, well, you know, for any of these kind of inset purchase agreement stuff, you'll always be able to get the dilettantes. Yeah. Know, their word, not mine. Um, and it's... Uh, that's a somewhat, I hope that's an unnecessarily cynical view. My belief, right, I sort of, I'm, I'm just asserting this, right, in the, in the absence of evidence, but my belief is that the mechanism we're describing is sufficiently concrete, sufficiently specific, sufficiently tied to all of these other elements that it provides a level of visibility and a type of realizable value yeah. that we'll be able to get past the dabblers, yeah. right? That we will exactly. be able to, that, and, and if we can mobilize enough, combine it with the anchor tenants, you know, there's a lot of things that have to knit together, but that's, that's how disruptive innovations have always worked, right? It's you have, curve, right? you have, cre well, you've yeah. created a parallel system. Yeah. And so when people see a system, understandably, they say, but that's a lot of things They're like, yeah, it is, but it's small. So it's okay. Right, it is a parallel small system. Right, the folks who made mini computers were making far fewer, far smaller, far less expensive computers yeah. than mainframes and laptops and 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 and. Yeah. And all of those things became disruptive innovations. Unfortunately, they were all commercialized by completely new organizations. Yeah. So we know how to do this. It's just that incumbent companies, to 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 as they say in the in the stand up comedy business, a callback to uh, to Adrian's <laughs> earlier observation about Keynes. You know, it's not. We don't need new ideas. We we need to escape the old ones, yeah. and so that's the uh, that's the challenge. So, in terms of levers, like levers to pull to actually push more companies, for example, to be involved. Adrian, you mentioned ESG a couple of times, right? And that that's evolving as well. What about the financial institutions, the investment institutions, like the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, who are looking at mining companies, going, mm -hmm. "You've got yeah. to do something." Are you are you trying to push on or pull in that lever as well? I mean, maybe you can talk about the New York um, mining investment. Oh projects. yeah, well the, yeah. Sh the short answer is not yet. Yeah. Um, I'm, but I, I've got to think. So I, I made an assertion um, a little while ago about the idea that if we can if we can give you line of sight to revenue, then the capital will show up. Yeah. And so my hope is we will soon enough be in a position to test that hypothesis. Yeah. Right. And so when it, on the investment side, the um, the empirical claim is that investors will see in these advanced purchase agreements a credible source of revenue that they will be prepared to back yeah. with investment capital. Mm -hmm. yeah. That so, aligns with their ESG requirements yes. as well. So they're struggling right now to invest in the mines and comply with their yeah. ESG requirements that they promise to their boards and the boards promise to their shareholders. And so I think once you can show that 
it is possible to do that and um, provide the kind of shareholder returns, the fair returns yes. that um, that your your investors require, and have these other attributes uh, on top of that for these kinds of investments. And I think there's another uh, feedback loop that will evolve from this as as the technologies that reach TRL eight are now being invested in, which is, I think, what CMIC has always... I think when I met you however many decades ago, I mean, the intent was of the intent was of, of CMIC to say, how do we accelerate these technologies into the market? So how do we actually solve the big problems of mining and how do we connect it to the innovator so that it can actually get accelerated yeah. and adopted, right? I think as soon as it becomes known that if you, if you show up with the right technology that that satisfy the requirement for the mine uh, you know, across these dimensions that the indirect customers are willing to fund because it's valuable for yeah. them, because it's valuable for our sustained survival, um, that that can scale and that there will be different tranches of financing available yeah. to do that. I think it will spur innovation on the VC side and bringing people to the mining industry to say, I want to participate in that because, first of all, I understand how important mining is. I have technologies that relate to the hard to abate sector. I have skills that I would bring to the mining industry. And I now know that if I actually reach a certain TRL level, um, you know, that what previously was the valley of death when you, yeah. when you have your technology, but then you can't get any of the customers to adopt yeah. it because yeah. of the cost issue. Well, that issue doesn't exist anymore. So suddenly you, you, you oiled the wheels of innovation, even upstream, yeah. you know, where people have conceptual ideas that will now be able to release more capital because they understand that as long as you reach a certain threshold, we don't get stuck with the commercial readiness assessment then yeah. where you, you now have all these great technologies which have low technology risk but, but can't be scaled because of the cost factors that are still too high. So, so I think it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a straw that breaks the camel's back sort of thing. As, as soon as you can unlock the flow of the right capital between willing, willing participants, I think it will unlock innovation on the demand side, yeah. where more people start to say, wow, how can we actually ask our customers to create different types of demand consortiums because there's a mechanism to channel that funds now. And when people far upstream see, I want to go innovate in mining because I know if I reach this TRL level, That's right. there's yeah. going to be scaling funding available. Um, and yes, you have to compete with others, which makes it a vibrant environment. I think it's... Uh, you know, you, you have to start somewhere, and 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 I think then as we evolve, you know, this this thing will 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 uh, it, will, will scale on its, it's own. It's interesting. You hit on two things. One, like you talked about, CMIC getting the technologies there quickly, but it, it wasn't. We did what, and are continuing to do what you you guys are doing now, is how you do it. It's not the what; it's the how. Like the whole concept of co-developing technology, the industry's never heard right. of. It. They've never used it. I, right, and that's that's the lower risk as well, right? Well, a, instead a, of one company taking all the risk, let's share that. We're saying, well, that brings the technology risk down, but you're still stuck with the commercial risk. Okay, well, we'll bring something in, in to lower that risk as well from far away non-consuming customers. And so if you bundle this all together, suddenly the system seems like it's got momentum. And that's what we're in the process of doing now because the discussions we're having with investors through mm -hmm. our, our subsidiary, Rethink Mining Ventures, is showing that they... The um, VCs and others in Silicon Valley are now going. What's this mining thing? We should take a look at the mining technology for all sorts of reasons. Like even even uh, Google, one of the, the head of circular economy for Google, has made statements to that effect as well. Mm -hmm. So that that is happening. We're trying to bring a few of these things together. They're just now more aware, but they're still stuck. 
they're they're uh, we're trying so, to un yeah. unstick it. We're yeah. trying to unstick it. Right. it. It's interesting conversations, and we're seeing it actually moving fairly quickly. Yeah. We're a little little surprised by this, but I want to go back to the ESG thing, uh, the ESG and the investment mm -hmm. side um, as a lever to pull, like to, to push to force. So what we're hearing from uh, a number of investors that mining companies in general, in general, this is a this is across the board, and there's ones on on each end. Is that there's greenwashing with respect to ESG? That's got to change, right? It's not. It's a tech tech tick box. Uh, one investor we spoke to basically said, "You've got the two bookends. You've got one that says we're all over this, 100% committed, and they're doing it. The other bookend is, don't even put that on paper. I don't want to hear it, right? ESG. It's it's really." Amazing the sort of things we've heard. So what what we're seeing from the from the investors on the ESG lens, and maybe this sort of lens could be used for what you're doing, is that they want visibility into what the mining companies are investing in and how they're decarbonizing on the technology, the processes, the business models, everything. So they're looking for that. And we've got them joining us to have that visibility. So when I said lever like to, to actually pull that lever going through the investment side to actually push the mining companies to say, that's only in the mining side. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not the downstream side. It may be worth taking a look at that as, as a bit of a lever again. I'm not sure. Listen, they, I mean, they eventually have to be able to validate, of course, that, you know, which technology will they uh, be willing to pay a premium on? Yeah. And there has to be somebody arbitraging between, you know, yeah. different technologies, engineering firms will have to be evolved. That's still to sort of be figured out. Yeah. I mean, there are companies like Sigma Lithium, I think in Argentina, that has brought um, very, very low carbon um, lithium to the market by just being smart about doing things differently, right? Um, so it's possible. It's possible with today's technology, but we want to make it easier to scale faster. Yeah. Um, and so I think that visibility is useful. But if all you see is see the problem more clearly, but no solution to move on yeah. from that, you know, it just makes you more depressed, and it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't actually move move the ball forward. And what we need to do now is to move the ball forward. And and by definition, these new technologies, the new hydrogen, if it if it was already um, uh, competitively advantaged or cost competitive, it would have been adopted if it had the environmental attributes. But the reality is, it doesn't. And it will take some years to get there, right? And some will never get there, and they will fall off, just like you know, normal innovation happens. Yeah. There will be lots, yeah. of, lots of tryouts, and the tree will be pruned. But the problem is, who pays the price of that pruning and mm -hmm. uh, new buds forming and the growth of the forest? Um, we have people on the other side. We have a hundred trillion global economy, you know, and then we have a, a one percent size mining industry that has to support that whole economy. There is money available yeah. and there's risk to be taken. Right now that risk is falling on VCs, but then VCs get to do the technology risk and then have no commercial adoption. And then you'll have yeah. the governments coming in with the IRA, for instance, and saying, we will subsidize that. But governments don't want to subsidize you know, a thousand different things no. because they can't manage the administration of that. So it, essentially it goes to a few very large companies a large subsidies, yeah. and there's no requirement for you to prove. It's just, well, you're convincing us that we need to make the subsidy in order to drive the price down, but there's no metrics that holds you accountable, really. This one is where the customers hold you accountable in that if you do not deliver it, we'll make you the promise of paying, yeah. not up front, but after the fact. Um, you still here's, here's a shock. You don't get paid till you deliver value. 
Yeah, Everyone right. okay with that? <laughs> right. So, so I think in that way, it hedges the risks on, on both sides. It drives the right behavior. Um, it removes that, that, that challenge of... So, so the other thing as well is if you think about the demand um, versus the cost, right? So supply and demand uh, from a commodity perspective. And then the, the premiums that people are trying to envision would be there that will justify this investment. But if you look at uh, potential um, um, demand destruction, like we talked about yeah. uh, from copper, for instance, what that means is if you're trying to build a copper mine at lowest cost just to be in the supply side, but that this demand side gets destroyed, you know, you, you may not be able to continue to sell because the volume in the demand side won't be there. And um, But if you're a green copper mine, then I would argue that the last mines that would be closed down would be those ones that yeah. has the lowest ESG impact and the lowest carbon footprint and is subsidized in order to get that. They will be the ones that survive. We're going to need copper. You want to be on the side of the equation where these would be the mines that's not just on the lowest cost curve, but they're on the highest environmental ESG attribute that people mm-hmm. will, will... They're not going to close down a mine that has all the wrong attributes just because it's lower cost. When cost doesn't matter anymore, it's all about the attributes. So, so I think there's a lot of things for, for companies to look at this and say, wow, that, that's, um, that insulates me from a lot of strategic risk that uh, otherwise I would have to assume if I go ahead and just trying to be the lowest cost because if the demand disappears... You know, um, how do I guarantee that I'll still be the preferred supplier? Yeah, I think by adding these attributes that we know are going to be required going forward, nobody's going to say, you know, by 2040, oh, you know, it's okay, we can, we can, we can, we can go and emit the way we used to before. It seems to be a hard target that we should get to net zero. That's not a, that's an immovable target for all of us to collectively reach. So, yeah. exactly. So, what do you call this? You have a name for this? Yeah, well, temporary, yeah, otherwise. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's um, by dint of repetition, it may just become what we call it. But a long time ago, coined the the the, the title, the label, um, demand better. Yeah. Right, so demand better of ourselves, demand better of of um, of our suppliers, demand better of our customers, and organize our demand yeah. for these things in a way that we can demand better the inputs that we require. Um, in ways that create ultimately one hopes a sustainable future. It's it's better to start with the demand to pull yes, the mining company absolutely. along, so that we can demand better of ourselves. Well, it's like if you want to affect change, sometimes you need the baseball bat, whether it's legislation yeah. or something else, forcing the change. That's right. typically just how it hold works. ourselves to a higher standard. Yeah, you know, so yeah. demand better. Now, now that being that being said, though, I do you know in in defense of the mining industry, I do see that they they are changing. Like they're since I started CMIC, what ten years ago, like the 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 in terms of innovation, in terms of looking at things differently, looking at clients differently, looking at stakeholders, government, et cetera, that is changing. This yeah, well, this I, seeing ourselves better. Well, where did we start the conversation, yeah. right? Which is that yeah. the reason the disruption is not happening is because there are no customers. Yeah. That's willing to pay. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, the attributes. That. That's the market yeah. failure. Yeah. The market yeah. failure, it's not an externality problem, yeah. right? There are customers willing to pay to compensate yeah. for the externality. Yeah. It's just there's no way for them to actually do it. To do, exactly, to and this solves that market problem. Well, we hope. We, I'd like we to hope. find out if it yeah. solves that problem. I, I, I've got a hypothesis. <laughs> well, based on what I've heard, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Well, right. That's why we had you here today, even though like this is... 
there's a lot of depth behind this stuff. Some of the readings you, you, you'd passed over, Michael, is uh, it, it takes a while to unpack some of that. But uh, specifically, is, is there anything we can do at Rethink Mining, Rethink Mining Ventures to help you out? I think it's what we're doing now is creating awareness that I think f people also first have to recognize that this market failure that Michael explains, yeah. that, that it, sometimes you're laboring in a paradigm and have sort of paradigm blindness. You're not, you don't even know that you're stuck with this problem because yeah. you're focusing on something so hard in, uh, in, in some other space. So, so to being, uh, you know, being aware that there is a, there's this problem and then being aware that there are solutions actually um, I, I think opens themselves up for 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 for, um, for inviting new ideas and, yeah. and I think the whole point of this is also uh, it's not like the whole mining industry would go to a conference and now everybody's going to sign up to credits no, right no, no. we don't need a hundred mines to do the same adoption of hydrogen to get the price curve to go down right and so there won't also initially be that much credit so there's going to be some competition for the smaller, you know, um, the price subsidies that are available. And that's a good thing, you know, because yeah. what we'd like to do is to to get the mining companies to recognize that this provides them the potential to to chart a path to become pe competitive in exactly the way that will allow them to sustain, um, you know, value creation for their shareholders, the community, the environment mm -hmm. for much longer with the help of society that's actually asking them to change. Yeah but not provide, helping to provide the means, right? And so I think for them to recognize that they're such a vehicle, um, you know, and talk to us and talk to their boards and say, you know, are we willing to, to do that? And I think we're also working with the supplier side of the equation because the mining companies themselves are not necessarily the, the creators of the innovation that yep. they need to adopt in order to use it, right? So it's the upstream suppliers that needs to become part of the equation. And for us to have conversations with them, and so we've had conversations with a, with a company that's made a, a zero emission truck that listened to this and, and said, my mining client, um, you know, wants to adopt our technology, but are stuck on, on, on the premium that they need to do this. And so the innovator came to us and said, can we broker a conversation with the mining company to say that, you know, there's maybe a way to get this funded. And so I think it's multiple conversations in parallel. Yeah. Um, you know, Michael will be publishing more stuff on the detail. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I think... Uh, well, well, what's different, if you take a look at this, you know, compare it to an entrepreneur with a new thing they're trying to sell, widget, whatever else, what you have that's different is you're not coming into the mining industry not understanding who they are. You're not coming into the downstream markets not understanding who they are. You've got like 20 plus, 30, three years experience, whatever. Whatever it is, so it, it's a little different. So when I when I say, and you said, uh, Adrian, tier all three to eight, we can do it quickly based on based on your experience, and you've got to wait. Well, the nature well. Of, the, of the work as well, and the right? nature of the work, build a mine to, to and test the it. externalities in terms of net zero, and we've got to change something in in general. I, if you don't have it have this up and running in two years, you should have it running next year. Yeah, well, sooner maybe. Like, it requires the ecosystem also to come together to listen at the same time. And so we're trying to orchestrate something like that here in Canada, bring the mining suppliers, mining companies, and bring the government. Yeah. I mean, we're looking at Canada supplying uh, critical strategic minerals to the yeah. world, you know, as a good governance 
body. But because of our governance, there's a paradox here. We're oh, so good at governance yeah. and so good at you know social and environmental that it causes us to be uncompetitive. Um, you know, it takes 17 years to bring a new mine online. Well, you know, we'll, we, you know the, the transition will be halfway through before we actually we better open be. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll open up the first mines, and then we'll open them up because we've locked all the, the the because of the regulation. We would have had to lock in operational plans early on to get the permitting to align yeah. to those plans. So you know, that doesn't work. So no. here is a chance, I think, for Canada to say we have the minerals. Um, we actually want to break the trade-off of being socially responsible, environmentally responsible, and getting to the market fast. Yeah. Okay, that seems to be a trade-off that we can't break. You can break it if you remove the bottleneck that's causing people to design the mines in the same way, which is this market mechanism. And yeah. one of the things you talk about is that, well, Canada is a, a, um, can be a producer, but it's a small consumer. Yes, So absolutely. that's a problem. Get well, more e consumers. E except it's not a problem anymore because we're going to give you consumers for... The environmental attributes of these small, yeah. low-carbon mines producing critical minerals in an environmentally responsible way, getting a price premium, or rather getting the environmental attributes paid for without having to command a premium for the commodity itself, right? And so you could even imagine taking the final step in that equation and saying, well, Canada has a carbon tax on consumers. Yeah. And say, well, you know what? Corporate Canada, you've got a tax liability as a result of your carbon footprint. I'll let you discharge that tax liability if you buy price guarantees for the environmental attributes of the commodities that are produced at the low carbon mines. VCPAs. It all it all knits together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's a system, but it's not a system that needs to operate at global scale right out of the gate. No, absolutely. it's a system that has to operate, and this is absolute truth. It has to operate at the scale of one project. We put together enough consolidated demand to support one at-scale prototype for one mineral on one location, and that's enough yep. to demonstrate an existence proof that this that this parallel system works. Yep. That's not an insurmountable um, barrier, in my view. And the challenge with permitting and social and environmental responsibility is somewhat related, again, to the, to the nature of the mine that you're building. By dramatically changing the mine planning, using different technologies, um, you're not circumventing regulation. You're eliminating some of it. You know, well, yeah, yeah, if you absolutely. have to look at fossil fuel contamination, and you have to have a permit of handling fossil fuels, but there's no fossil fuels in the mine. You do not have a God. permit requirement for that. And so, if you can involve the community uh, from an equity perspective um, as part of the development of the plan, because you've changed the way you do things yeah. and become community owners as well. You know, uh, you you can accelerate it and improve the governance of of all of it and deliver the mines that the world really need and be the leaders in that. So, like Tesla has led the automotive, why can't Canada lead the transformation in mining in the way the world needs mining to be? And we're back to where we started around embracing and breaking constraints. You yeah. start out yeah. by embracing the constraints that that confine you. And that put, but in a way that it puts you on the path to ultimately breaking them. So you yep. go back to electric cars. Now you've got electric cars that are cost competitive, that are more fun to drive, that are connected yep. automobiles, that have reinvented the automobile experience, that have zero tailpipe emissions, that on and on and on. Now they're just better in every way. Yeah, they're just better. Yeah. Well, I want to give you a cobalt mine that's better in every way. Yeah. But I, I'm not. Nobody's smart enough to build one right out of the box. So what we're describing is a process. That allows you to get there. Yeah. And just back to your comment about government and regulations and, and eliminating stuff that's going to be in regulations, et cetera. Um, 
crazy idea. Is there any way to tie this demand better to regulations? It's a dangerous thing to do because the governments don't, don't really understand these things. Yeah, tie to regulation. Don't know. I, no. I, that, I, that, I'm going to put that in the bucket of hard problem solve later. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, agree. Maybe yeah, not agreed. to force it, but to have the initial suggestion from government to say, listen, you, we're not going to sign up up front, but you come with the evidence and we may consider, you know, looking at those um, inset credits or the virtual uh, commodity purchase power yeah. agreements as an, as an, um, off, I want to use the offset word, but as an offset yeah. to your carbon scope three emissions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we'll stand by now that we understand it and we'll, we'll reserve the right to, to, so from a regulatory perspective, you get a tax, credit. Yeah. You get a tax yeah. credit for yeah. that, right? Yeah. But I, I don't think forcing as in you have to do this. No, no. Touch, touch on. I, have I mean, to government does that all the time. They have yeah. research tax credit. They have tax credit yeah. for all kinds of behaviors that yeah. they want to motivate. Yeah. And you could imagine a situation where what, and it's not something that has to lie entirely out of their hands, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Right? So the permitting process for the mines and all that goes with it could say, look, in order to qualify for the appropriate yeah. tax credit, the mine has to meet. Fair enough. Yeah. All that's fine. I mean, I think we can start in the voluntary market in the way that we're describing. And then um, how it evolves from there, well, you know, I'm not smart enough to figure all that out. I barely know what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow. So, um, But I think everything I've learned in my work in, in strategy and innovation would tell me that this puts us down a particular ski run yeah. that gets us where we want to go. Yeah. Precisely what path we follow You'll Don't see know. once. Yeah, it yeah. depends on, you know. It's a foothold market that sits outside of the current, yeah. you know, market path. Set of constraints. Yeah. And that Instead takes of you constraints. A different place. And, and you cannot get to that unless you have this thing that plugs the hole yeah. from an economic perspective that says we, we're going to have to connect the indirect consumers that has the money with the people that have the solution. The ability so, and the willingness to pay. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now, the reason I was asking about governance is because next week I'm actually sitting on a panel at the Energy Mines Ministers Conference mm -hmm. about deploy development deployment of clean tech. And Have him give me a call. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's the Minister Wilkinson is going to be there. Yeah. Right? So, what so that's, that's always a push conversation. Yeah. We got the technology here. They're trying to push into the market. There's resistance from the buyer. Why? Because they don't have the ability to pay. Why? Because their customers don't have the ability to pay yeah. premium. So then they're pushing back to the suppliers, invest more, drive the cost down. You know, Instead of saying, no. go to the market early, and then we'll learn using customers' funding it's yeah. versus using investors' money to stay exactly. out of the market until you're cheap enough. Well, yeah. that's not going to work for it us. It always confuses me because it's, this is well-known. That there's a difference between a learning curve and a scale curve, yeah. right? And when technologies are young, you worry about learning curve effects long before you worry about scale yeah. curve effects. Yeah. And yet, we're looking at technology saying, oh, we have to fix the Do cost problem. Yeah. I know. Do it at scale. Right. <laughs> I'm just going to skip over the teenage years. Yeah. yeah. I, I, no, that's, you know, that's a mistake. Yeah. Right? You need, you need to go through that learning curve to earn the right to get on the scale. Once you're on the scale curve, the problem's been solved. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. I think that's the problem, the word adoption in first scale. Yes. We got the technology, now need to scale it. Yeah, but it's not ready yet. Well, if we scale it, then it will get ready by itself. No, it won't because you're scaling it in the environment where people are not going to expect to be learning. They're going to expect to... No. What did they say? The no, matter, yeah, no matter how many people you put on the job, it takes nine months to make a baby. Yeah. Like, you, yeah. th this stuff needs to go... We can't yeah. hurry it up. All the more reason why we have to start now. I've seen too many net zero plans where companies say, well, I mean, we're going to deal with our scope one and scope two and come 2035, the only thing left will be the hard problem. 
Yeah. Oh, wow. Or did you miss the memo? Yeah. We got to make it the easy to bait sectors because the funding is available uh, and change the the words that we're using because the hard part is is not in the technology or the innovation. It is the market failure related to the economics of how this works. That we can fix because it's it's not bound to physics. You just have to demand better. Yeah, exactly. I didn't have any. Did you gentlemen have any other closing things? We've no. covered a lot of stuff. No, we could go down fine. lots of rabbit holes, but yeah, no, it's fine. I'm no, I think it's very good. I mean, it's it's exciting. It's necessary. I think one one also have to contemplate if this doesn't succeed. You know, what's the alternative? Yeah, like what else you got up your sleeve? What else yeah. do we have? I I don't see anything else. I mean, we 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 have all the elements in place. We just can't catalyze it. We need activation energy. Yeah, yeah. We know yeah. where the lower minimum is. Leonard but there's Jones. this hump that sits in front of us yeah. to get there, and this hump is not the people, not the will, not the technology. There's a whole bunch of stuff, um, but they're small humps. The big hump is the fitting in the capitalist system, which requires yeah. you to be competitively uh, price competitive in the commodity markets, which you can't solve magically just pushing no. against the rope. You've got to have a different mechanism. And uh, if it's not this one, it has to be something similar. Because yeah. if we don't remove that that activation energy needed to get to the other side, we won't get to the other side. If we don't and get and to the other no, side... And the, and the political will is not there to insist on it by fiat. No. Right. No. Like, absent, do it. Yeah. It won't happen. And carbon tax would be a solution for that, but that is so complicated. And, yeah. you know... Uh, and even then, it doesn't fit, because a carbon tax is two things. that A carbon tax, I don't think, will be effective enough because it just increases the cost of doing business. Yeah, right. It's exactly. just a passed on cost now. Now everybody everything is more expensive, but it yeah. doesn't differentially. It doesn't create the incentive to, to no, actually to do what we need to do. Yeah. And it wouldn't until it was so high that you would cripple the ability to do it. Yeah. yeah. So there's a catch twenty two there. And and that will take long because there will be so much resistance on the yeah. way there. It wouldn't happen. There already is resistance. <laughs> yeah. This is a voluntary market. It doesn't have to be the whole market. It has to be a pocket of it has voluntary to be big customers. Enough to support one project. Yeah, and, and one project, by the way, that is about fifteen percent the size of all the way minds currently think about one project. Yeah, it doesn't have to be five hundred thousand tons a year with a forty-year time horizon. It has to be ten thousand tons a year for five years. Yeah, yeah. Do that, and you, and if it, you're like, but wait a minute, it's three times the price. That's okay. I think I can fix that problem. Yeah. Because if you come up, I mean, the carbon intensity of something like copper is so incredibly high that if you reduce it by 90%, the number of tons I get to sell at 300 bucks a ton. Yeah. You know, if I got to find you 20,000 bucks a ton for copper instead of 10, I think I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. But empirical claim. Yeah. We got to go find out. Got to go prove it. Our kids are demanding it of us. We should demand it of ourselves, and you know we should we should do it. Absolutely. Except I had to stop talking about it at the dinner table because my kids said you're depressing the hell out of me. Shut up. <laughs> and I said, you know what? You got a point. Not making me feel any better either. <laughs> so. I think it's only depressing if we can't see ourselves clear of adopting something like this. Yeah. I think it's for the first time we now look at mining and what is possible, and we can see this in the excitement of mining companies that we we're talking to. Yeah that they realize there's something there and that um, if this can provide them the um, air cover, if you like, to go and do the things that they are struggling to do but want to yeah. do anyway, you know, this is removing a, an obstacle, a constraint that um, 
that they will be very happy to do. It, it actually removes a couple of constraints and addresses a couple of their challenges on the technology side and how do we do things better, but also on the demand side, how do we get a price premium right. for what we're trying to sell. And every mining company doesn't have to sign up to, to no. Michael's point. I mean, uh, there's going to be the innovators that that will be the leaders that show the way and others will follow. Yeah. You know, we can't have everybody be in the top quartile. It doesn't work like that, right? Well, so, it's similar to the aviation yeah. fuel. You've got a you've got a small group of people who believe in it, the snowball effect, right? Mm -hmm. And it grows. And the people that join are because it's two reasons. We really believe in it or we don't want to be left behind. We want to see what's going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. That's how it works. So you can get and, one to and, start. And it will solve the supply concern as well, I think, from suppliers because yeah. it will draw more people to the mining industry. More capital, more mines will be yeah. opening up. Different ore bodies will become in play that's not in play now because yeah. of you know, those ore bodies don't fit the lanes that we used to look at it. Well, if you can change the lanes and have a couple of lanes, so suddenly supply is not such a big issue. You just have to have somebody fund it. Or, or Adrian, change the lens by getting new people from outside the mining, start a mine. Yeah, exactly. There you, you go. Get, get, uh, simple simple answer. My eight-year-old showed me the other day how he built a roller coaster going into a, you know, sort of a, a cavity that he built that looked like a mine, and he was very excited. He said, look, he, he did it in a, in a few, you know, few minutes. If you ask somebody to go and develop a mine plan that, you know, had different technology going in there. It'll take six months and people convince themselves not to start because it's too hard. Well, part, so, of, part of the thing too is changing the language. I'm, I'm personally, I'm not a mining person, Michael, so you don't, so you know, I've worked in my, I've worked in one mining company as a co-op student, that's it, for like four months and that's it. But I've been working in the innovation space for decades, almost three decades in multiple industries. I don't like the term mine planning because you're stuck into this sort of, sort of mindset and with the blinders on. What the industry needs to do, and this is a discussion I had with Alim uh, from Hatch, is you've got to redefine, reframe, I don't want to say redefine, because you end up stuck, right? But reframe that conversation to what Andrew Reynolds talks about, right? Modeling and simulation. You don't want a mind plan, because plans will get you stuck on a rigid pathway. Modeling and simulation allows you that flexibility, especially new technology comes along, ideas come along, you can actually plug it in. And, and modify your plan, right? And then collect the data as it's operating. Mining is very complex, and, and uh, I have immense respect for people that, that um, are the miners and put these plans together. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, the tools are now there, but, again, I think the risk associated with doing things differently, um, uh, they weren't willing uh, parties to, to help fund that. Yeah. I think we can use our need to change on the ESG front as a way um, to help fund some yeah. of these other changes that needs to be made. And because we can do it in parallel, I think it's very important, you know, what we've what I've learned from Michael with disruption as well. You don't start the disruption process within the core. Yeah. Because the antibodies in the core is there to eliminate anything that yeah. looks different yeah. because looking different is risk and we don't want risk. Yeah. We've we've honed this the solution over the last fifty years you dare not change anything, you know. Yeah. You, so you'd have to take it outside of the core. So, you know, so when we look at mining companies wanting to adopt that, I think they shouldn't see this as, wow, you're going you're gonna to create huge disruption inside of my tightly honed process. No. It's like, no, we're going to take a few of your select people and work and collaborate with others, do something on the side separately. So it's, it's just as we build a different mine, we fund it in a different way. We may also have to plan and support with the technologies that are available. Do this completely differently as well. That's part of the thing that has to be learned and has to be funded 
in the absence of the constraints that we're used to making and the yeah. trade-offs that's, that's in the orthodoxy of only reason, mining. And the only reason any organization will ever build a new system is if you give them a new customer. Yeah, right. Exactly. The, the pull. You've got to have right. a pull. So says, I'll give you the money. Can you build this for me? Yes. Yeah. Go do it over there. Well, if you, you say to somebody, I need you to build something new and then go find someone to buy it. No, forget it. I don't want no. that bad. No. And I don't blame anybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. the way the economy, that's why Clay's framework is so powerful. Yeah. Right? It lays bare an underlying truth. Yeah. So this is all about demand better, not supply better. Yeah, demand. It's called demand better. And so we'll give you a new customer that wants this very different thing. And the hope is that the industry will rise to the challenge. Yeah, not the hope is. I'm pretty confident it will. And what you just described, Adrian, sounded like uh, Lockheed Martin. Conkworks? <laughs> yeah. Except they Never were heard of it before. subsidized with a huge amount of taxpayers' yeah. money. We're trying to say the... Concept. Society is recognizing the need to change. They have the will. I mean, Deloitte did a survey in the U.S. I think they do that every year, sort of asking customers what would they be willing to pay for yeah. um, electricity if it's clean. Yeah. And I think you know the the majority of them said we'll be willing to pay thirty percent more for our electricity if you could just guarantee us that it is that it is greener and lower carbon emission. They and want the industry supply. to just get on with it, but. Um, the mechanisms are not that easy that yeah. you may demand that, but how do you support that? You can't just be talk either. You know, when yeah. Greta Thunberg and those say, you know, the people on the supply side and the regulation is just, yeah, 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 that's true. But now let's switch, sw let's switch the, the owners on the consumers and say, listen, if you're willing to pay a little bit more for your products, if there's a mechanism that consume that collectively, the aggregate of that money finds its way to do the things upstream in the economy that we absolutely all understand we need to do. We can solve those problems so that they don't occur. Yeah. You know, it's not just building uh, decarbonized mines, it's building it so that the environmental impact and the environmental footprint and all the stuff we talked about, biodiversity, the the community involvement, all of that stuff. You design that around because when you bring in renewables and the decarbonized technology, you do it in a way that it sustains the economies around them as well, right? So it's not just for the mine anymore. It's how does the mine integrate into the community, yep. into the environment? And all of that is part of decarbonizing by using the tools and the resources locally much, much more intelligently. You know, the, the interesting thing about what you're doing with Demand Better, it's all focused on net zero and decarbonization, but you could also probably, I'm assuming, apply to it to like zero tailings. Well, we the, want, we the, want zero. Yeah. There, there's, there's discussions going on now where there's, we don't want tailings. Right. We want to eliminate tailings. Right. So I think that's where regulation may come in and say you need to have um, a certain tailings footprint. Um, but that's associated with then using, you know, dry pressing or evaporating technologies or something like that. That's usually energy intensive. That currently is usually carbon intensive. Yeah. So if you put regulation on that, then the onus is on the mines to say, wow, how, how are we going to be doing that cost competitively yeah. in Canada when the rest of the world don't have that restriction? Then you'd say, well, hey, looky here. You know, that's a constraint that we can't relax. Yeah. But that's associated with energy, and energy is associated with carbon. Yeah. We have a mechanism for that. Yeah. Now you can use that to do all the things you want to do. So in some ways, there may be regulation that will allow you to do this. This, this, this solution doesn't solve all the ESG problems. No. It solves the carbon problem because that's what we can quantify. Yeah. We can't quantify tailing in terms of how much tailings are in the tripod here, where we can quantify how much of the actual commodities there and what's the emissions associated with that. But that can be connected to, to the desirable outcome of all the other stuff. That's right, yeah. 
Um, and, and, and it's a voluntary market. So you may go to, to, to your voluntary um, funders of subsidies and say, we can build a zero emission mine, but we're going to have a huge tailing pond. But if we reduce the tailing, we'll have to have 20% more energy. And you know that will push a subsidy up by another 20 or 30%. Yeah. Are you yeah. okay with that? And then for those voluntary customers, they say, we prefer that because it's a voluntary market. Yeah. And and I am, I think if the mechanism works... And it's project-specific. Project-specific. That's the other thing yeah. too, right? And, and so it has to be verified. And you know, just like with the carbon, you show up with a zero-emission copper and your footprint in the tailings is that big, sorry, your premium is going to go down because yeah. it's sort of associated with that. You can yeah. bundle it maybe in that, I don't know. You but, tie it together somehow. But, yeah. Yeah. but that's tough to be resolved later. I think we have to focus yeah. on the stuff that's credible, it's quantifiable, measurable and transactable yeah if you like cool so we start with carbon as a way to do all the other stuff eventually as well awesome training uh, we're, we're almost at time yep. so i'm gonna run otherwise we're gonna be talking here for another hour or so and we can't be doing that so this this was awesome what's this one <laughs> no this, this is oh, the rehearsal start over. it starts at noon i <laughs> know this is this is great thanks Thank you for tuning into Source. We hope you'll learn some valuable insights and really cool information about the mining industry and especially how it impacts our lives every single day. You want to stay tuned to what we're up to and the really cool innovations that are going on every single day? Connect with us on our social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, or at our website, rethinkmining.org. Until next time, catch you later.